This is episode number one, two, three, with two-time cancer survivor and record-setting swimmer, Dean Hall. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, lifestyle entrepreneur and fitness trainer. My goal is for you to gain more clarity on what the best version of yourself looks like, what the best version of yourself is capable of, and then to give you the tools, tips, and inspiration on how to make that person a reality. Today, I bring you part one of my interview with Dean Hall. Back in 2013, Dean was diagnosed with leukemia and lymphoma after his own wife had passed away just three years prior from cancer after their 30 years of marriage. He was hopeless until he found a purpose that brought him back to life. While he had cancer, Dean became the first person to ever swim the Willamette River in Oregon back in 2014. Then he followed that up by being the first person ever to swim the River Shannon in Ireland in 2017. In part one of this episode with Dean, you're going to hear all about how he made the decisions to take on these challenges. You'll hear about how brutal the challenges actually were and what he learned about himself through them. You'll hear about the struggles that he had after his wife passed away and what the couple of keys were to him coming out of that depression. In part two, you're going to learn about how he's been a licensed therapist for over 30 years. You'll hear about the lessons that he learned serving others and some super important keys to how we can work on ourselves. Make sure you share this episode with a friend or family member. Share it with someone who is big into physical challenges. Share it with someone who has cancer or someone you know who has a family member with cancer to give them just a little bit of hope and maybe challenge them to step outside of their comfort zone. You never know what kind of impact this episode might have on them. When you're listening, take a quick screenshot of the episode and post it on your Instagram stories and tag me at carrier underscore best you and tag Dean at swimming in miracles and let us know your favorite part. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You don't want to miss the list of amazing guests that we have lined up for you guys. I've never been more excited about the state of the podcast than I am right now. So I hope you guys are too. But for now, it's time. It's time to work on getting closer to the best version of yourself today with the one, the only Dean Hall. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I'm super fired up today. We're going to have an absolutely awesome conversation with the one and only Dean Hall. Dean, I really appreciate you spending the time with me today. Uh, Nick, it's a pleasure. I've been looking so forward to this. It's uh, amazing what you do, and I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you in particular. <laughs> well, yeah, I greatly, I greatly appreciate that. Right back at you. Um, so Dean is a record-setting swimmer, a two-time cancer survivor, a, a therapist, a motivational speaker, and coach. And we already talked a little bit about those things off camera and off podcast. So I'm super excited to dive a lot deeper into them right now. Um, you know, you worked three decades as a clinical marriage and family therapist, and you continue to do so um, a few days a week, as we just discussed. Um, and you're the first person to ever swim the entire length of the of the Willamette River out in out in Oregon um, back in June of 20, 2014. And uh, you're the first person, I guess, to swim the River Shannon in Ireland in, yeah, in 2017. Don't guess about it, Nick. It's a fact. Yeah, it's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Right, right. That's awesome. So basically, the way I want to start today is where you were, you had leukemia and lymphoma back in 2013. And right. then you decided to swim the Willamette River in 2014. Exactly. Why? Why? Well, I was dying. 
And uh, I knew as a therapist, uh, reading Viktor Frankl's work, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, I knew that purpose, because I'd even seen it with clients that I'd worked with, I knew that purpose had the power to bring me back to life, or at least give me my best chance. And in 2013, I was down to 159 pounds. And uh, my family jokes that I've never been a pretty boy, uh, but man, I was ugly. I, I looked <laughs> like I'd, I, I mean, you can see every rib, you can see my pelvic bones. Uh, and I was just emaciated. I was gaunt. Biggest thing on me were my lymph nodes. They'd swollen to the point where I couldn't uh, turn my neck. And under my right arm, I couldn't put my right arm down. Uh, fully because I'd had a lymph node that my doctor lovingly called my hockey puck because it was exactly almost the size and shape of a hockey puck. And I had just, because I'd lost my first wife 15 days before our 30th anniversary in 2010, I just had lost my drive for the first time in my life and lost my will or zest for living. And I, th I was looking in the mirror in August of 2013, and I, I didn't even recognize this guy that I was looking at. I looked at his eyes, and he was so sad that it kind of shocked me. And I thought, you know, if I just let this thing go and just take me, no one will know or blame me. But then instantly, it was almost like with a shock of realization, I, I remembered I got a 21-year-old daughter who's just amazing and wonderful in the light of my life, and she just lost her mama, and it, and it was an entirely selfish thought that I was thinking, and so I thought, I've got to do something to come back to life, or at least leave my daughter with a legacy of courage, mm. and so I started asking. I don't know if you know it, but the brain by its very nature has to answer every question you ask. And the hmm. problem is many of us ask really crappy questions. And so then we get hundreds, if not thousands, of really bad answers, and it just makes us feel miserable and stuck. So I started asking, what would get me excited about life again? And what would be a wonderful way that even if I died trying, it would leave my daughter with something to be proud of. And I would stop several times a day and even prayerfully kind of meditate on that for a few minutes and then let it go. Yeah. And nothing. I, I expected to get an answer within a day or two. Nothing. Right. And then a couple weeks later, I thought, well, if I'm not going to get an answer, I might as well clean up my place because I just moved into a dark little duplex I was uh, renting for the first time in 30 years. It, it, it felt like a huge failure. But I thought, yeah, I'm going to unpack these boxes and maybe decorate my place so that it feels like a sanctuary. And so I started unpacking boxes and I ran across a journal that I'd been forced to keep when I was 12. Wow. And uh, I thought, well, I wonder what the 12-year-old Dean said. So I started flipping through this thing. And it said, uh, two things I have to do when I become an adult. I have to climb Everest. I have to swim the English Channel. Well, I knew there was no way in my state and with my financial burden from being a cancer patient, I was climbing Everest. But I thought, I think I can swim the channel, which huh. is kind of crazy, but man, 
it put me in that sweet spot, Nick, uh, right between absolutely being terrified because it was such a big goal and absolutely excited. Every time I'd think about it, for the first time since my wife died, my body would just kind of come alive yeah. and I'd get excited. And so I decided to go to my oncologist and tell him, and he absolutely freaked out. He's like, uh, hell no. Uh, you get in a public pool, it'll kill you. And I said, well, I'm dying anyway, doc. What do you want me to do? Die watching Wheel of Fortune? Yeah. I'm not going not gonna to go out that way. And so looking back on it now, I, don't, I didn't really think about how I was gambling my life just getting in a public pool. But I did it. And the first time I did it, I could only go 11 laps. And it took me over an hour. Yeah. But I felt like myself for the first time in three years. And I felt excited. And uh, so that's what I started doing. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, uh, first off, I love man's search for meaning. So I think that's really cool. And I really love the phrase that you said that purpose has the ability to bring you back to life. I think that's a really cool phrase. And and something that's like, for you, it kind of was almost literally life and death. But for a lot of people who just like lack motivation for whatever reason, they don't have the drive. If they just can go back to trying to define some sort of purpose for themselves, then that's all they need to like get a little bit more clarity on and get a little bit more of a finger on in order to start increasing their own drive and increase their own internal motivation, which is something that you did a really great job of, I feel like. Um, so when you started to take on this challenge, I'm going to go ahead and jump forward oh, yeah. towards you actually doing it. What was the most unexpected challenge that you faced when you actually did the, when you actually swam the river? Well, uh, one of the things that I do that really helped me, I did several practice swims, so there weren't a lot of unexpected challenges, but one of the things I do that's very unique that I would really like to offer your listeners, especially if they're in the endurance or CrossFit realm, is uh, it's real popular for Olympians and sports medicine to say, hey, visualize the perfect performance. Well, that's good, but what I see these high performers doing is when something goes wrong, they kind of freak out, and many of them quit. So what I did for months is I imagined myself ending and doing this successfully, but very imperfectly. I imagined it to be extremely hard, extremely cold, uh, that I'd be tired, maybe even swimming injured, that it wouldn't be fun. I would imagine all this and then blend kind of a weird uh, form of radical acceptance with sports imagery. I'd see it being difficult, but me overcoming it, still having fun, still doing it. So when I actually got in the water, Nick, it was exactly how I imagined it. It was hard as hell. Yeah. Uh, and for the first week and a half, the first hundred miles, everybody just thought I was insane. So the media just stayed way away because they thought this guy is a weirdo cancer patient that's trying to kill himself. We don't want to be a part of that. But once I got to a hundred miles, they're like, wait a minute, this story might turn out kind of good. So they jumped in. But I think to answer your question more specifically, the one thing that I didn't give enough credence to is the water was right at 40 to 42 degrees. And I'm spending 10 to 12 hours 
And within about, because I was, I had less than 6% body fat. Um, and, and even with a three mil wetsuit, I was having to get out about every 45 minutes, get on the riverbank and do jumping jacks and run into oh place. Oh my gosh. Because I was going into deep, what they call deep core throttle. Uh, so battling hypothermia was was probably the toughest thing. And it was expected, but I had no idea what a big opponent or challenge that would be. Yeah. Well, I love how you were able, or I love how you visualize the things going wrong because I've actually had a few people on the show now really talk about that. That I had a, really? I had a yeah, I had a lady because it's something you don't hear that often which is which right. is interesting um yeah. so i had a lady who was a sports agent for a lot of different people but she was a sports agent for a golfer named billy horschel and he said that the biggest piece of advice that tiger woods gave him was that yes you want to visualize yourself succeeding and right. like making that putt like hitting a drive right down the middle of the fairway but you always you also need to visualize yourself screwing up you also need to visualize yourself missing the putt and missing a drive because you need to visualize how you respond to those particular things. And then I also had like a fighter pilot who talked about just making sure that you think of all the things that go wrong so you can prepare for those, think of all the contingencies. And just so many people, or just not, I guess not so many, just a few people that I brought on because I hadn't really thought about it before. And I think that's just really important because you have to fully immerse yourself into the situation before you're into it. And if you kind of do that, I think your mind will has the ability to potentially pick out some of the things that could go wrong. And right. then once you do that, your creative juices start to flow up in terms of how you can start responding to those things and not let them force you to quit or hold you back too much. So then that's something that really cool that you were able to do beforehand. Well, the really cool thing for me is you just put me in the same league with Tiger Woods. Fighter pilot, man. So I, I don't know. My head's now so big. I can't. Yeah, right. I'm going to be quoting you. Yeah, there you go. One of my favorite podcasters, but I'm going to be quoting Nick Carey. Well, Nick said. Yeah. Nick said I'm like Tiger Woods. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. I got to hand it to you. Um, So what do you think from from this first swim in in 2014, the Willamette River, what do you think is the biggest thing that you learned about yourself after completing Mm. it? Or maybe during the challenge? Yeah. Uh, Boy, I... I don't know that I learned that much about myself as much as uh, I learned about my position in the world. You know, in Western Hmm. culture, we're uh, taught that we're separate from each other and separate from nature. And moving for 22 days with the current and constantly feeling the power of that river and moving with it, I became so connected to the river. I started calling it Mama River. I felt like I was cradled in her arms. And I just, you know, they're using water now. Uh, have you heard of Wallace J. Nichols and the Blue Mind? Yeah, there's, they've found that all it doesn't matter race, religion, gender, age, uh, anywhere uh, they find people, if they put them in, on, around, by, or underwater, their brain chemistry changes within a few minutes. And they're starting to use it with veterans. It's, it's a really... How does it change? Uh, it, it calms. It, it relaxes. And then they found it's, it, it kind of creates a feeling of 
nurturance or support. You feel connected and soothed in some way. And so then uh, you can let go of some of these nightmarish traumas that you've experienced. And so they're using it for anxiety, depression. They're using it for especially PTSD. And really what I had was what's called traumatic bereavement, a form of PTSD. I was hardly ever sleeping before the swim. I'd have several nightmares about my wife dying because she was diagnosed with a brain tumor, and we didn't see it coming at all. 52 days later, she's dead, you know, right before our 30th anniversary, and she'd been my world. And so uh, I, I I just was really traumatized by that without sounding too melodramatic. But there was a huge change just being, and I'd never read about the blue mind. So I, I, I just noticed that every day I swam, I felt more connected to nature, to the river, and less uh, grief-stricken, less broken, stronger. Yeah. yeah so it's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's super crazy because I, I mean, I've never heard, I had never heard of that until you brought it up, but like... Anytime people are on water, like they're enjoying themselves for the most part, right? If someone's on a boat, they're rafting, people always feel more at ease. They don't think about their problems as much for whatever reason. Everybody loves going to a lake, going to beach. And even if you're just like in a city that has water and you're around the water, like you're exercising, like in Chicago, this past summer, I was running along um, the the lake and it was just like, it soothes you. So it's it's crazy to, to that your brain chemistry actually changes. Um, right. And I think that's such a powerful thing that if you know that you can take advantage of more often if you're going through these, these sorts of circumstances. But I kind of want to, I kind of want to stick on this a little bit. First sure. off, I'm very sorry for your loss back in, okay. back in 2010, especially how, how fast that happened. But after having lost your wife, mm-hmm. what was the biggest thing that you learned about yourself after having lost her? Well, uh, that I'm a total screw up. probably not what you expected me to say. Uh, No, I'd always been hard charging. I'd always made good decisions. I was raised uh, by two mountain climbers who were very driven themselves. And I had always kind of been the good kid. And so I'd been very careful, very disciplined, uh, put myself through college, Worked uh, the first time I didn't have more than two jobs. I was 42. So I'd always worked really hard and uh, saved and been very methodical. And even, I, I hate to admit it, but I think there was a bit of hubris that went with that success and that form of discipline. Because even when I, I look back now, when I was trying to help people, I'd make sure they didn't... Um, I didn't ever say anything like this, but I look back and when I was working with people, I think, okay, well, I'll help you out. But man, I would never have done that or I would never have yeah. made that choice. And and there was a bit of pride and, and arrogance that was hidden from my view. And uh, once my wife died, I was so devastated that I almost kind of was angry and a bit almost childishly rebellious. And I made all sorts of stupid mistakes, said all sorts of horrible things, and uh, just acted like a dumb teenager or something. And uh, 
it was all extremely regrettable. And, and the biggest part I regret is how hard that made it for my daughter because she saw this very stable, steady uh, dad acting in ways she, so in many ways she felt like she'd lost both parents. Mm. So I learned that I'm entirely human. And because of all that I'd done and how steady and successful my life had been previous, I think there was a hidden pocket of pride there. And I thought that I was kind of immune. Gotcha. So what were, what were a couple of keys then? Like you said, it, t- it took kind of a, a couple of years really for you to, right. I mean, I don't know if you ever maybe fully get over it, but it took you a couple of years to get to the point where you were able to maybe move on. What do you right. think were the, what do you think were the couple of keys in order to help you move on and recover from realizing you were a screw up? I'm only, right. I'm only saying that because that's your words. <laughs> yeah. No, you feel free to call me that anytime you want. Uh, <laughs> The reason I believe my uh, story is extraordinary is because I'm entirely ordinary and I'm nothing big, always wanted to be, always worked to be, but the beauty of my story comes from the fact that I'm really not and so anybody can do what I did and I think that offers real hope, but uh, some of the key moments were uh, coming across that dream and uh, going for the English channel and then realizing that even a big dream like that, if you give it room to expand and be flexible, life will lead you. There's one day in November, I'm walking out of the pool and it hit me. Who cares if another middle-aged guy puts on a Speedo and swims to France? It does the world no good. And in my case, it's not even going to be a pretty picture. So (laughs) what am I doing? And so for a couple weeks, then I very prayerfully started to ask again several times a day, how could I do this and not make it about me? Do it in a way that benefits the world. And that's when I uh, remembered that ever since I was 24, I wanted to swim the entire length of the Willamette River. And, uh, so I found out that still no one had, mm-hmm. and I was only born four blocks from the Willamette river. So it's always been a part of my consciousness and a part of my story, especially my childhood and 187 miles. And here's the thing you got to remember, I still didn't know if I was going to make it and if I was going to live through this, but I thought if I swim the English channel, my daughter can be like, yeah, yeah, he swam the English Channel. But if I swim the Willamette, she can say, yeah, you know, I lost my dad, but he was the first person in history to do this thing. And I mean, how many opportunities do you get to do that? Yeah. And so it just, it just stirred this, this passion inside of me. And so it was, it was finding something that I was passionate about. And I think that's so important. Yeah. And you said earlier that uh, even if people aren't dying, but I think if they're not passionate about something, they're dying a slow death. I really do. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad that you kind of brought this up again, because this is something that I wanted to make sure I I mentioned earlier, is you said that this goal was kind of right on that threshold of extremely terrifying, but still kind of like extremely exciting and something that you thought like could potentially be doable. I don't know if you follow, I don't know if you follow the work of, um, 
it's not it's not the exact same concept, but I don't know if you follow the work of Dr. Jordan Peterson, but he always talks about this or this edge of order and chaos mm-hmm. and how you always kind of need to push yourself. You always need to test that limit of right. what you're actually capable of and, or what you're just not quite capable of. And you always kind of need to test where that is and gradually try to level that up um, as you go throughout your life and continue to challenge yourself. And that's kind of what I thought of when you talked about like extremely terrifying, but something that really jazzed me up and really excited me because I think, because I think a lot of people, when they set goals, maybe they set a goal and then they realize it might not be realistic. And so they lose the excitement and they lose the passion right. for it. But so you kind of need to find that threshold. And again, I just, that's so cool. That that's so cool that you were able to do that. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, but, I think goals need to be uh, way beyond realistic. I think if you're not absolutely terrified that goal isn't big enough. Yeah. If it's just a little threatening, well, you're going in the right direction, but it's not enough to really get you passionate. It's got to be terrifying. Yeah. That's, like I said before, that sweet spot between terror and total excitement. Yeah. I, I agree that it needs to definitely scare you. But I definitely need to. You need. I definitely believe that people need to have some sort of belief that it could come true. Sure. Because if you don't have any belief, I don't think people are going to take continually take action on making it come true. Right. Um, that's but, that's well put. Good point. So let's go to and like like I said back in 2013, you had leukemia and lymphoma, and you decided to go no chemo and no radiation. Is that correct? Right. And I w- just want to simply ask. What, what was the thought process behind that? I've had, my dad's a two-time cancer survivor, and he's a man's man, man. He was a, talk about a guy that's hard to follow. He has climbed all the peaks on the West Coast and Mount Hood here, uh, you know, our largest peak in Oregon. He climbed when he was nine. He's climbed it over 25 times. And then he's run most of the world's major marathons. I mean, this guy's a tiger. And to see what chemo and radiation, the long-term effects did on him. And then I've had several clients where they've had uh, elected to have chemo and radiation. They weren't forced. They weren't toward the edge of death, but they elected to and saw the long-term effects on their organs and arteries, I thought, absolutely not. I'll do it if I have to as a last-ditch effort, but I think there are better ways, and I'm a real believer that our bodies are so magnificently made that if we hook into the things that really superfuel them toward health, they have much more propensity to heal than to create disease. With cancer especially, I think there are two forms of cancer sources. One is environmental. Um, So many people back in Kansas are getting cancer because, you know, they had crop dusters fly right over them, you know, with DDT and things. And so environmentally, they got poisoned. But I think the larger share of us, it's emotional. We're holding on to anger or sadness or fear or hurt or loneliness or guilt or shame. And we're holding those in our body and suppressing them so intensely, it creates a a dysfunctional state inside of our body, a state of disease, and finally it breaks down. And I think that's clearly what happened to me. Yeah, I was angry. 
I, I was lost. I was confused and I held, and I was just absolutely grief stricken. And I just held that in my body mm -hmm. and it broke it down. Okay. Gotcha. And then, so two weeks after your swim on the Willamette river, you went back to the doctor and you got blood tests and they found you were cancer free, correct? Right. It was a little more than two weeks, but yes. Okay. Uh, and I knew I was feeling great, yeah. but I thought it was just because my head cleared and the doctor's like, oh my gosh, if we hadn't diagnosed you ourselves, we'd think somebody misdiagnosed you because I had a form of leukemia called chronic lymphocytic leukemia and it just tears down. It doesn't, it's not a fast acting killer. It just tears down your immune system and kind of acts like AIDS and you die slowly and uh, usually only old folks get it. And the one thing they told me the first time I was diagnosed with it is it will be here forever. The best you can do is manage it. And I'm like, nah, I don't think so. And they thought I was delusional and in denial. I'm like, no, what the body creates, it can heal. And they just look at me kind of sad and sympathetically like, oh, this poor dumb guy. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's exactly what happened. Wow. That's awesome. So cool. Yeah. Um, so when you went to going on to the, the next, the next first ever to, to swim the river Shannon in 2017, yeah. what were, what were maybe some of the similarities and commonalities between the, ch this challenge and the Willamette and maybe what was a couple differences? Yeah. Uh, there were more differences than there were similarities. Okay. The one thing that was similar is once you start passionately pursuing a dream at first you are entirely alone even your friends and family and i've found this with many people now uh, it's the common part of really going after a big dream at first they're like yeah no this is kind of stupid uh, you're you're just dreaming and they try to talk you out of it and so that's kind of a common part that was a similarity and uh, at first, nobody's interested, and you are walking down this thing alone. But then, once you start doing it, and you're moving forward, it's all of a sudden, like, springtime comes, and everyone wants to be a part of it. And mm. especially over in Ireland, the Irish are so generous and friendly. And I was uh, working to raise money for the Childhood Cancer Foundation of Ireland, once they found that this crazy yank was swimming their river, but going to leave the money there for their children, they couldn't do enough for me. So that was pretty cool. The thing that was different was the Shannon was as harsh as the Willamette was sweet. Mm. Uh, there was no current because it's pretty much just a 200 miles of lakes. Um, so I had no assistance. What I didn't realize is in June, uh, it's kind of their windy season because they're an island. So uh, the wind sweeps off the ocean from the south. And so I, out of 25 days it took me to swim the Shannon, 23, I had a 10 to 25 mile an hour headwind. Um, and Brutal. a lot of people don't know it, but when you're out swimming in a river or a lake and you've got a headwind more than 15 miles an hour, it moves the first two feet of water in the direction of the wind. So it was like trying to run or swim 200 miles on a treadmill. Oh my um, gosh. It, I was just crawling for each 
uh, inch and each scrap. And then the other thing that was very, very difficult is access to the river uh, was, was hard. Uh, you couldn't get in and out like you wanted to. And probably one of the hardest things was the riverbed was made of flint and shale. And when that cracks, it creates razor sharp edges. So anytime I'd try to crawl out of the river, I'd just be slicing my hands and feet up. So I bled every day. In the oh, yeah. Gosh. So it was just almost torture. Yeah. Yeah. Geez, a few a few unexpected challenges in <laughs> yeah. yeah. that one. Oh my lord! Yeah, and one of the biggest challenges is unexpectedly, I fell in love again in 2015 to a beautiful fitness model, and I thought, you know, if she's interested, who am I to say no? <laughs> I, I got to I got to see what this lady's like. And I, when I found out she's just as beautiful on the inside as she is the outside, I just fell deeply in love. And so we got married in December of 2016, and I had had my dad, my 79-year-old dad, had been my guide boater leading me through the Willamette. And it was such a beautiful, sweet time between us that I wanted that for my daughter. My daughter was now 24. I thought this would be a perfect rite of passage being on the river had really healed my grief. It might be a chance for her to heal her grief. And then the whole first week, I am struggling. I am sure I'm going to fail. And it was awful what was going on in my head. I thought, I've just spent 12000 bucks to come over here and show my daughter at the start of her adulthood and my wife at the start of our marriage, what a big fat failure I am. Mm. Um, <laughs> and so I just had to work. Usually it's not hard for me to overcome those, but it was just absolutely, uh, it, it seemed like there was no way I was going to be able to accomplish this thing. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, you did. And it's yeah. behind you, obviously. Um, but something that I'm really interested to talk about it today is actually your work as a therapist. Um, I think that there's so much there that I could selfishly learn from and that a lot, yeah. of, pe that a lot of people listening could learn from. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And you, sure. you said you've done it over a little over three decades now. And we talked beforehand, which is one thing I didn't realize was that you did a lot of work with, with sexual trauma right. um, and that thing. And you mentioned off podcast how You've been doing it for so long, but a lot of people on average maybe spend like four to six years doing it and they just kind of get burnt out from it. So what was maybe one of your biggest struggles early on as a therapist that you had to overcome? There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dean. Remember, this is just part one and part two will be released just two days after this one. If you enjoyed this episode, go send him a quick DM on Instagram at swimming in miracles. Dean is a huge fan of this show, and I know he'd love to hear your feedback on what you loved about the interview. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure you go leave it a quick review on the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes. That'd be a great way for you to support the show and ensure I can continue to bring on great guests like Dean. Remember that purpose can bring you back to life. Sometimes it's not easy to discover what that purpose is, but you're sure as hell not going to find it by sitting on the couch eating pretzels. You've got to go out there and live life. You've got to live experiences. You have to create memories and challenge yourself outside of your comfort zone. 
Remember to stay tuned for part number two to be released in just two days. But for now, you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and work on taking small steps, one step at a time, one stroke at a time, to get closer and closer to your best you.